Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Driscoll's. Only the finest berries. Hello, young chefs, and welcome back to Mystery Recipe. I'm Molly Birnbaum, Editor-in-Chief of America's Test Kitchen Kids. And I'm Mitzi, other than Molly's right-hand gal and co-host on the show. Every week on Mystery Recipe, we'll be talking about the fun, fantastical, and fascinating sides of a different kitchen ingredient. Plus, at the end of the season, we'll use all the ingredients to cook a mystery recipe together. Can you guess what it is yet? So far, we know it will contain salt. But that is also all we know. Could basically literally be anything, so maybe no need to make guesses yet. Today is day two of Salt Week. That's right. Today, we have a well-seasoned edition of Tricky Trivia, followed by a sun-dried interview in Ask a Grown-Up. And to round off today's episode, our friend Andrea is back with some flaky science in how-to time. Plus, we have an exciting introduction to make. Our new intern starts today. Yippee! Fun fact, he told me he's going to be riding his bike to work. That's pretty cool. Right? I wonder if he's like a big bike guy. One of those two-wheel aficionados. Well, we'll find out pretty soon. But first, to the theme song. Looks good. I bet it tastes good. Ooh. So people actually fire lasers? Mystery recipe. And we're back. Mitzi stepped out just a minute ago to let in our newest friend. Oh, here they come. Hey, Molly. Look who I found. Hello, hello, hello. So glad to be here. (laughs) Hey there. You must be our season five intern. That's right. My name's Kyle. I'm a butter knife. My pronouns are he, him, and I am the most excited for this. I can't even tell you. (laughs) Kyle, we are so excited to meet you. I'm Mitzi, she, her, as you know, and this is Molly. My pronouns are she, her, as well. Molly, Mitzi, got it. All right, we're ready to rock. Wow, you have a lot of energy. I love it. Yeah, sorry. I just biked all the way here, and I'm just still feeling a little pumped up. All right. Molly, I asked Kyle, and he's not actually passionate about bikes. He said he's passionate about climate change. That's right. Yep. Kyle just loves climate change. He's like, yes, please, let's change it. And he told me he wants to learn about food and podcasting from us so that he can inspire everyone to change the climate as much as possible. What? Mitzi, no way. No, I thought that was uh, what you said. No, Mitzi. I want to prevent climate change. Climate change is a bad thing, not something we want. I am passionate about spreading awareness and inspiring people to do what they can to help fight climate change. Oh, so exactly the opposite of what I said. Yeah, I sort of assumed. Well, Kyle, while we are unraveling the tangles of my misunderstanding, maybe you could tell me what climate change is? Sure, I'll start by saying that a lot of people, especially young people, already know what climate change is. And sometimes it can be a little stressful to talk about. So if talking about climate change does stress you out, don't worry. I'm not going to spend my time here all season preaching to the choir and going on and on about how climate change is a bad thing. We all know that. I'm here to focus on the good stuff, the progress that's being made and breakthroughs we are finding, things like that. That being said, 
I do want to start by defining what climate change is for Mitzi and for any of our listeners who might not know. Can I just say, Kyle, that you've been here for like two minutes and you are already really good at this. Wait, really? You think so? Well, thank you. It's easy to talk about something I care so much about. So, climate change. Yes. So the word climate is a word that refers to the typical weather of a place. The weather is what's happening outside today. It's hot here and might rain later. That's the weather. But the climate is how things typically are for a long period of time. The climate of New England is that we normally have a cold winter and it snows often. So weather is short term and climate is long term. So then I would assume climate change means that the climate is changing? That's correct, yes. Lots and lots of scientists agree that the temperature of the Earth is slowly rising. Nice. More beach days. Not nice, sad to say. The global climate of the Earth has fluctuated over the past 800,000 years. You may have heard about something called the Ice Age. But lately, in just the past 200 years, the Earth has gotten warmer and warmer faster than it ever has before. And the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is far higher than it ever has been in the past 800,000 years. If that keeps happening, then lots of not-so-great stuff is going to keep happening, too. Oh, no. But I do not want to be all doom and gloom in oh-no all season. Yes, climate change is real, and yes, climate change is really bad. But there are lots of things we can do as individual people, as individual families, and as a society as a whole. The big, important stuff is what we can do as a society as a whole. Those are the changes that will affect lots of people and make a big difference. I love that. Things like what? Well, there's just, like, a lot to talk about. <laughs> and I don't want to hog the mic. So I figured I'd bring things up as we go through the season, and they might fit into other topics we're discussing. Does that sound okay with you two? I think that sounds great, Kyle. Yep, that sounds amazing. Awesome. Hope that sounds okay to you too, listeners. Hooray! It's going to be so much fun! Kyle, I have to say, I am already very impressed. Yes, you are so sharp. I am actually quite dull, if we're being literal, as a butter knife and all. Ha! Nice. Well, how about we sharpen you up just a little bit with our first segment? Hey, you! Yes, just not literally, if that's okay. Of course. It was just for the pun. Kyle, let's get started with tricky trivia. Here's how it's going to work. I will give you a fact all about our ingredient theme for the week, and you get to help our listeners decide if it is true or false. Amazing! I will not let you down, new at-home friends. Great. Let's get right to it, then. Here's your first one. True or false? The word salary in English comes from the Latin word salarium, which was basically the allowance ancient Roman soldiers got to buy salt. So, Kyle, what do you think? Does the English word salary come from the Latin word salarium? Wow, Molly. I've got to admit, I didn't think we'd be starting with the history question. This is tricky trivia, after all. And really, history and food are tough to separate. Knowing what and how people ate throughout history gives us a better understanding of their cultures and the type of environment they lived in. Fair enough. All right, let's think, listeners. Both of those words start with S-A-L. And I remember learning that a large amount of English words come from Latin. So I'm going to take a guess and say that the first part of the question is true. But the second part is definitely tricky. For sure. Why don't you make the best guess you can? 
Even though it's fun to get the answer right, you still learn something if you guess wrong. Okay, then I'm going to say that the second part of the question is true too. Since I know salt has been around for a long time, and since you said last episode that salt is literally so important to human life that we can die without it, I think it's reasonable to think that it was important to Roman soldiers. You're correct. That was some great thinking. Many historians believe that ancient Roman soldiers were paid an allowance, called a salarium, that was either salt or money used to buy salt because it was so valuable. And the word salary does come from salarium. The sal part can be seen in the French word salaire, which eventually trickled down into modern English as salary. Woohoo! I'm so glad I got that right! And, um, I just want to say that while I think it's really interesting that salt was kind of used as payment for them, I would prefer not to be paid in salt, if that's okay. No problem, Kyle. We will not pay you in salt. Okay, next question. True or false? It's easier to float in fresh water than in salt water. So, Kyle, do you think this is true or false? Is it easier to float in fresh water than it is to float in salt water? Aha! I know this one off the top of my head, and I have a fun fact to go along with it. Awesome. Go ahead and give us the answer then, and feel free to share that fact. That statement is false. Fresh water is not easier to float in than salt water. And actually, the opposite is true. Salt water is easier to float in than fresh water. That's correct, Kyle. And do you know why? I do. It's because dissolved salts in salt water make it denser than fresh water. It's easier for things to float in denser water. When something is denser, it means there is more matter or stuff in the same amount of space. So the dissolved salt in salt water means there's more stuff in salt water than fresh water, which is why it's easier for our bodies to float or sit on top of it. Now for my fun fact. The saltiest body of water on Earth is Don Juan Pond in Antarctica, and it contains around 40% salt. The ocean contains about 3.5% salt. Wow, correct on all accounts. It is indeed easier to float in salt water than fresh water. And Don Juan Pond is the saltiest body of water in the world. But you probably won't be floating there much. In addition to being in cold Antarctica, it's only about four inches deep. You underestimate me, Molly. I am a butter knife after all. Although, as a metal butter knife, I rarely can float in anything. Very true, Kyle. All right, last one. True or false? Michael Jordan, a very famous basketball star, used to put salt in his basketball shoes. So, listeners, Kyle, do you think this is true or false? Did Michael Jordan used to put salt in his shoes? What? This one is sort of wild, Molly. I'm not really sure. But let's think this one through, listeners. I know Michael Jordan is arguably the best basketball player of all time. But why would he put salt in his shoes? That sounds like maybe it would hurt, or maybe slow him down a little bit. What do you think, listeners? I think, to me, this sounds false. And so, that is my answer, Molly. I'm sorry, Kyle, but the answer is actually true. What? Why would a basketball legend put salt in his shoes? Well, he wasn't doing it when he was a basketball legend. According to a children's book called Salt in His Shoes, written by Michael Jordan's mother, Dolores, and his sister, Rosalind, Michael Jordan used to put salt in his basketball sneakers when he was a kid. Growing up, Michael wasn't very tall, and he almost quit playing basketball because he wasn't growing as fast as his brothers and the other boys on his team. 
He thought if he wasn't tall enough, he wouldn't be able to play. But to encourage him to keep playing, his mother told him he would grow faster if he put salt in his shoes. And so he did. Is that true? It's not true, no. So she lied to her son and then wrote a book about it? Well, technically, yes. Sometimes telling a small white lie or a fib can be the right thing to do. Not often. But in this case, the truth was that Michael and his mother had no control over whether or not he would ever get taller. And there's really nothing they could do to make sure he did. But by giving him something harmless to do, like putting some salt in his sneakers, she helped him feel like he was doing something to get taller. And that gave him hope. Huh. So by giving him something he could do, it helped him not give up on his dream of playing basketball? Exactly. So basically, salt played a bigger role than you might think in the life and shoes of one of the greatest basketball players ever. How cool, Molly. Thanks for sharing all that knowledge with me and Tricky Trivia today. Kyle, coming in with a monologue about climate change right out the gate and then smashing it with your first segment. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that was very, very fun. We get to do one of those every week? Every week. Cannot wait! What's next? Hello? Chad! Hi, friends. And hello, Kyle. How's your first day going? Honestly, it feels like Kyle's been here a week already. Aw, thanks, friends. It's going great, Chad. Are you here for whatever segment we do next? That's right. Next up, we are going to be learning all about salt on Mars in Ask a Grown-Up. That sounds like something I want to know more about. Me too. But before we get to all that, it's time for a quick word from our sponsors. Grown-ups, these ads are for you. I want to tell you about our sponsor, the National Mango Board. Here at Mystery Recipe, we love our fruit fresh, sweet, juicy, and available all year long. With so many varieties to choose from, like Tommy Atkins mangoes, honey mangoes, or Kent, no matter when a mango is on your mind, you're free to grab one whenever you like. But keep in mind, don't focus on color when grabbing this fresh fruit. They come in so many different varieties that you may pick a color you love, but a ripeness you won't. So whenever you see one that makes your eye twinkle, give it a gentle squeeze. If there is a slight give, you know you've found a winner, no matter the season. Grown-ups, discover more about marvelous mangoes at mango.org slash mystery recipe. Hey, grown-ups, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Green Pan. Their Valencia cookware collection is the winner of ATK's Best in Test for Ceramic Nonstick Skillets. Green Pan is constantly working to live up to their name. They use recycled aluminum, their factory runs on 30% solar energy, they recycle their wastewater, and are focused on reduced carbon emissions. Greenpan has won dozens of awards for their dedication to the environment and is always working to make healthy products better for everyone. We are thrilled to have a sweepstakes giveaway with Greenpan to celebrate Earth Day. Grownups, visit atkkids.com slash earthday for your chance to win. And we're back. We are back. So, Chad, what are we learning about today? Well, Molly, today I wanted to talk a little bit about the work that NASA is doing with the Curiosity rover to search for organic salts on Mars. 
There's salt on Mars? Maybe. It's not surprisingly very complicated. But to help us figure it all out, I talked to this guy. So my name is James Lewis. I'm a scientist based at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. As you can probably tell from my accent, I'm originally from the United Kingdom. But I moved to America and started working with NASA back in 2016. And it's been a really good adventure. James is a real-life NASA scientist. For anyone who might not know, NASA stands for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. They study outer space. I had to start by asking him what it was like working at NASA. It's kind of amazing because you'll you're like uh, you'll walk down a corridor and then you'll hear like someone in the room saying like, "Oh, we're getting ready to fire the laser or something." <laughs> That's fantastic. So people actually fire lasers. <laughs> we do. <laughs> That's cool. Even though I now had 1,000 questions to ask James about lasers, we were here to talk about salt. And the first thing I learned was just how big the word salt actually is. We all know about table salt, but in chemistry, the definition of salt is a little bit different. So um, everything around us is made up of atoms, and atoms consist of uh, protons that have a positive charge and electrons that have a negative charge. And in salts, you basically have that positive charge and that negative charge interacting and holding things together. So the definition of salt from a chemistry point of view is something made of positive and negative atoms that are attracted to each other and therefore holding themselves together. So the table salt that we're eating is an atom called uh, sodium and an atom called chlorine. And sodium is positive, chlorine is negative, and they kind of bond together and that's how that salt is made. But there are a lot of other, more complicated types of salt as well. And most of them you shouldn't eat. (laughs) The kinds of salts that James is looking for on Mars are all very different from what we'll be using in our finale mystery recipe. Organic salts contain an atom called carbon, and looking for carbon on Mars is super interesting, as it is a very important part of life. I asked James exactly how the Curiosity rover was testing for them. So of Curiosity, we have about 10 different instruments on the rover. And I work for one that's called SAM, which stands for Sample Analysis at Mars. Curiosity has a drill and a scoop to collect samples of dirt and rocks that it can deliver to SAM, which is about the size of a large microwave and which contains ovens that can be used to heat up the samples. We heat up the samples and then we have something inside SAM that we call a mass spectrometer. And that mass spectrometer is basically sniffing the gases that are coming off the sample as we heat it up. It can detect things like water or carbon dioxide. And the temperature at which we see these gases can tell us a lot about the chemistry of that sample and what sorts of minerals might be in there. To continue the cooking theme, it's like when you're cooking something in an oven. Just from your sense of smell, you can tell, like, is there bread cooking in that oven or pizza or chicken and so on? Uh, On Mars, we're doing pretty much the same thing. We're using that mass spectrometer to sniff the gases that are coming off, and that tells us a lot about the chemistry of that sample. I mentioned that one of the gases we detected is carbon dioxide, and a lot of the carbon dioxide detections we've made are very similar to what we'd expect from organic salts. So the SAM data is giving us these hints that we think there could be organic salts on Mars. Pretty amazing. Mars is so far away from Earth, the Curiosity rover needed to be able to not only collect samples from Mars, but also test them itself. And it's loaded with instruments like SAM that allow it to do just that. Next, I wanted to understand why this is so important. So like the goal of our mission was to try and say, was there ever, ever a time on Mars where life as we know it could have persisted on that planet? Uh, so on Mars, like 
We're looking for these, this evidence that life may have left behind. These complicated types of salt, or organic salts as James calls them, are one piece of this puzzle. They are examples of things that microbes or tiny microscopic organisms like bacteria may have used for food, which would prove not that life existed on Mars, but that it would have been possible for it to exist. They aren't looking for footprints or skeletons. Absolutely. We, I mean, we would never complain if we found like a, a fossilized footprint or something. But <laughs> Instead, they are looking for microscopic hints that microbes would have had something to eat if they lived there. And the exciting thing is, they succeeded. So, relatively soon after landing, we looked at rocks that contained salts that precipitated from a lake uh, that would have been habitable to life as we know it. So like the goal of our mission was to try and say, was there ever, ever a time on Mars where life as we know it could have persisted on that planet? And the rover uh, pretty quickly found out that was the case. So um, we're in a really exciting position where we know that life could have existed on Mars, and now we're looking for any evidence that that potential life may have left behind. So the Mars Curiosity rover found salts that would have been made from an ancient lake one that could have sustained life, which is so cool. Just how difficult this is to do is hard to understand. What James and his team were looking for is hints of the possibility of life that may be billions of years old, and they were looking for it 178 million miles away. It would have been hard to even imagine this type of work would have been possible when James was a kid. Which made me want to ask James one more question. Is it safe to say that kids who are listening to this now can be able to study these things in a way that we haven't even invented yet by the time they grow up? Absolutely, because you mentioned that with Curiosity, we can't bring samples back. But you may remember last year, you had the Perseverance rover landing. And the key part of that mission is to collect different samples and gather them together. And then we're going to send a subsequent mission called Mars Sample Return to bring those samples back to Earth. So when those samples come back to Earth, and hopefully like people listening, that might be when you're just starting to get into a scientific career. So if you're listening to this and you're like four or five or you're 10 or 11, and you think like, I can possibly work at NASA. If you have a passion about science or you keep asking why, that's basically what scientists do is we, we want to try and understand things. So I'd say never be ashamed of being a nerd. Be always proud of questioning how things work uh, trying to understand, doing experiments, and hopefully we'll see you at NASA in a few years. <laughs> Back to you, Molly. Amazing. Thanks so much, Chad, and thanks to James Lewis as well. See you next week. So, Kyle? Mitzi. I'm wondering if there's anything about salt and climate change you've come across in your research. Well, one study comes to mind, but it's a little weird. Oh, we love weird. Do tell. So, remember how I said the Earth was slowly getting warmer? Well, back in 2018, a group of scientists at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in Texas suggested that if they threw a bunch of salt up into the atmosphere, right up past the sky, but right before you reach outer space, then it might help slow the warming of the planet. Really? That is weird. Right? In a cool way, of course. Their thinking was that because salt is reflective, it might bounce some of the sun's rays back into space, which could help cool off the planet. Huh, 
That's a really interesting idea. Yeah, but it's just an idea. There's just a bunch of reasons why it wouldn't work. And it's just really hard to test and fully understand the outcomes from. But there is a lot of research going into somewhat similar concepts right now. It's something called geoengineering. Geo what now? Andrea! Hi, Andrea. Hi there. You must be our new intern, Kyle. That's right. That was a big word you were throwing around there, geoengineering. What's that? Well, it's a word to describe a plan or action taken by humans to affect the natural environment. It could mean introducing something like salt into the atmosphere to reflect the sun's rays or capturing carbon dioxide from the air. Wow. Sounds cool, but sort of dangerous? Exactly right, Andrea. None of these plans are actually happening right now. They need a ton of planning and testing first to make sure they are actually good for the environment and don't have negative effects down the road. So they could be dangerous, but they are an interesting thing for folks like me who are passionate about climate change to learn more about. So cool. Thanks for sharing that with our listeners, Kyle. Who would have ever thought that throwing salt into space could help make the planet warmer? Oh, I love climate change. No, Mitzi. It would make the planet cooler. And we do not love climate change. We are trying to prevent it. All right. Whoops. Anyways, Andrea's here, which means it's how-to time. Right, Andrea? That's right. Kyle, now that you've taught me something, it's time for me to teach you. Yes, Andrea is an associate editor at America's Test Kitchen Kids. That means she works on developing recipes and experiments for our cookbooks and things like the Young Chefs Club and Preschool Chefs Club boxes. You can find out more about all that fun stuff by going to atkkids.com. We want you to practice your cooking techniques while you're our intern. So every week, I'm going to teach you something new to up your arsenal of kitchen skills. Sounds amazing. So, what are we going to be learning about today? Today, we are going to be learning all about how to measure different kinds of salt. I'm sort of familiar with measuring. We have measuring spoons like teaspoons and tablespoons, and then measuring cups like a half cup or a whole cup. But what I am not familiar with is different kinds of salt. Well, that's why I'm here, buddy. Today, we're going to learn about three different kinds of salt, though there are a few more. The three most common types of salt are table salt, kosher salt, and sea salt. Table salt, kosher salt, and sea salt. Got it. What makes these salts different? Well, these salts are gathered and processed in different ways, which affects the size and shape of salt crystals. And they are used in cooking in different ways, too. They are different sizes and shapes and are used for different things. Double got it. Let's start with table salt. Table salt crystals are often processed or crushed up and filtered so that table salt crystals are all tiny cubes which are the same size. So table salt is small, mostly even-sized cubes. How about option B, kosher salt? Kosher salt is made of coarse flakes that are lots of different sizes. These look a lot more like tiny rocks under a microscope than table salt. They'll have lots of different jagged edges. Okie doke. So kosher salt crystals are bigger than table salt, flakier, and not all the same shape. How about our final option, sea salt? Sea salt is made up of large crystals or flakes, just like kosher salt. They're also all different sizes, but in general, sea salt is even bigger than kosher. Wow! So now that we know what makes these types of salt different, what do we need to know about how to measure them? 
Well, because different types of salt have different crystal sizes, they take up space differently. It's the same concept as the density lesson you learned in Tricky Trivia. More stuff in the same amount of space. I don't understand. What does that mean? Think of it like this. A bathtub can hold more tennis balls than basketballs. The tennis balls are smaller, so they pack more tightly into the tub and leave less empty space in between. So the smaller the salt crystals, the more fit into a container, like a measuring spoon or dry measuring cup. Since sea salt is the biggest and flakiest, it might be sort of like a basketball. Kosher salt is a little smaller, so it could be like a tennis ball. And table salt is the smallest, like a golf ball. Nice thinking, Kyle. That is absolutely right. So then let's think about a teaspoon of salt. A teaspoon of table salt is going to be saltier than a teaspoon of sea salt because the table salt crystals will fit in more compactly, and so there will be more of them. When I think about this stuff, it's always helpful to think about the teaspoon of table salt weighing more than the teaspoon of kosher salt. Helpful info there, Andrea. Thank you. So how do we use this knowledge in cooking? Well, we use different kinds of salt for different things. Table salt dissolves extra easily, so it's great for stirring into dishes while you're cooking, like soups and sauces. Kosher salt's coarser crystals do a great job of sticking to meat and vegetables, so you'll often sprinkle it on before cooking. And big, flaky sea salt crystals are perfect for sprinkling on your food right before you serve it to give it a little punch of salt and some crunch. Amazing! Anything else I should know? Well, you want to keep an eye out while reading your recipes. Most recipes will specify in their ingredient list which type of salt to use. And so it's important to look and use the type of salt the recipe recommends. If it doesn't say, you want to assume that you'll be using table salt. Plus, if you don't have the type of salt that the recipe recommends, you can always convert the measurements. It's handy to remember that one teaspoon of table salt equals two teaspoons of diamond crystal kosher salt. Andrea! That was awesome! Thank you for breaking down those differences so clearly for me. I will be sure to look at what type of salt a recipe calls for before I measure it. Bye, Andrea. Wow, this has been so much fun. What's next, Molly? That's it for today, actually. Nice work, Kyle. Yeah, awesome job, buddy. Your first episode was a smash hit. I feel like I learned a ton from you already. Listeners, we'll be back with another flavorful episode next time. We'll see how the science shakes out in our pressing questions segment, followed by a visit from a salty old friend in our wild card. And remember, at the end of the season, we'll be using all of our ingredients in a very special mystery recipe to cook together. Can you guess what it is? If you love Mystery Recipe, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way, you won't miss an episode. And feel free to leave us a review. We love reading them. Until then, keep keep on on cooking. cooking! Mystery Recipe is hosted by me, Molly Birnbaum, and I am Roasted Salted Cashews. Chad Chennai is our writer and producer. He is a big barrel of cheese puffs. Andrea Vavjin is a white cheddar Cheez-It, and Katie O'Hara is a goldfish cracker, and they are both contributing writers on our show. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Chester Guazda, an apple, and Matt Boynton, a salt and vinegar potato chip of ultraviolet audio. Jonathan Roberts composed our theme music and his popcorn. Our director of post-production is Jen Margolis. She is a Twix. 
Our director of production is Diane Knox, who is also salsa. Fact-checking by Julia Arwin, a nacho cheese Dorito. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher, and she's a spicy pickle. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. He's a tortilla chip. David Nussbaum is our CEO, and he's a chocolate-covered pretzel. Special thanks to our senior science editor, Paul Adams, executive editor, Kristen Sargianis, executive food editor, Susanna McFerrin, art director, Gabby Hominoff, deputy food editor, Afton Cyrus, associate editors, Andrea Vavgen, Katie O'Hara, and Tess Berger, editorial assistant, Julia Arwin, photo test cook, Ashley Stoyanov, and test cook, Faye Yang. Special thanks to James Lewis. This episode featured the voices of Kira O'Sullivan and Brian Green. Thanks again to our sponsors, Driscoll's, The National Mango Board, OXO, and Green Pan. Mystery Recipe is a production of America's Test Kitchen Kids. Seriously, Kyle, I learned, like, so much today. Right. Like, for example, how do we feel about climate change? We love it! No, Mitzi. Here. Repeat after me. Climate change... Climate change? Is... Is... A bad thing. Amazing! Oh, wait. (laughs) Sorry. We'll work on it. Hi, grown-ups. I wanted to tell you a little bit about our newsletter. If you love the fun food content we share on Mystery Recipe, then sign up today for our ATK Kids newsletter to receive even more recipes, activities, and stories from me straight to your inbox. As a mom of two, I always try to include things that are important to my family, and it's a great way to hear about all the new things we are cooking up at ATK. Plus, every new email added will be entered for a chance to win three free ATK Kids books for toddlers through teens. We'll draw 10 winners every month while the promotion lasts. And we have some great books available all the time. Head to atkkids.com newsletter to sign up today for your chance to win.